to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. We're back. Happy New Year to everyone. So glad to be back from the holidays. I hope everybody got some much-needed R&R. I certainly did. It was a stressful end of the year, and I'm glad to have had a little bit of time off. But we're back kicking. Things are going okay. Talk about that in a second. Unfortunately, Frame is no longer at the company, so we are strictly just me from now on till we have a new co-host, but we thank Prime for his time here. He did an immense amount of work over the past year and a half at Overcome. It was great having him, and I certainly will miss him. But that leads me into what I want to talk about next, which is you may have seen in December that I made a post on Twitter that we're in a little bit of a difficult financial situation. I don't think it's any secret, and I'm writing something about this for the Jacob Wolf Report, which you can find at jacobwolf.report later. Or if you're a patron, we'll make sure to link it on the Patreon feed. But I don't think it's any secret that esports is having a really, really difficult time right now. And I think that a lot of the people that work in esports, a lot of the people that watch esports are struggling with their finances also, which impacts our ability to generate Patreon subscriptions, etc. And I have a path forward for this this year, but honestly, it's really tough and it's going to require a lot of work. So for those that do listen to this podcast regularly and you're hearing this, if you can subscribe to the Patreon, it's the best way to help us. It's in the show notes. But we are going to keep this thing going. Mikhail and I are still on board. Chichilia is still working with us on this show. Larry Burke is still editing our work. And we had a really fantastic piece come out right before Christmas called Charity for Profit that is over at jacobwolf.report. And we're being sued by Softgiving, the subject of that story, now known as Brandfluence, for alleged defamation and conspiracy, which is not true. But we are going through a lot. There's a lot going on at the beginning of the new year for us. So very excited to be back and very excited to continue with Visionaries. The show means a whole lot to me. And you're going to be seeing a lot more influencers, I think, here throughout this year on the show. That's the goal. I really enjoyed some of the stuff we were doing at the end of 2022. Want to get back to doing that and making a more active effort on my end to do less biz ops, less fundraising, etc. And focus very strictly on content because that's what you all are here for. And that's what we want to reward you with is more content. Our guest this week is Aaron Ashley Simon. Erin is many different things. Erin and I first met when she was hosting at Cheddar and running or co-hosting their esports show. She is now an executive at Exet, the esports team. She has acted. She has spoken. She's featured in commercials. There, she was in a Super Bowl commercial last year. Generally, a influencer around gaming nerd culture in the creator space. Erin's a really positive force, in my opinion. And we had this conversation right before the Christmas holiday because there was some a little bit of controversy. I'll fill you guys in. We talk about it throughout the episode, so it's best that you know. Um, there was a controversy around the group Offline TV, and there was a comment that one of the members of Offline TV, Skara, the former League of Legends pro, made while all of them were in the car about someone's complexion. It was a very colorist joke, and it was meant to make it seemed like everyone who was in this dark car obviously they look darker because they're in the dark that they were black and it was a really sort of nasty joke and i think aaron and i both kind of reacted to it by thinking that there was a bigger conversation to be had about colorism and racism within the gaming community and not just any conversation this may be controversial for me to say but i've been to enough gaming conferences over the years 
that feature a diversity, inclusion, and uh, equity panel, a DEI panel. And the majority of those DEI panels, I have found, even as someone is a big proponent of diversity and equity in the workplace, I found them to be extremely useless. What I mean by that is that a lot of those panels that I've been to is basically just having women primarily, women of color in particular, sit up on the top of a panel and basically tell their most worst workplace life experiences, which is important to hear. But if I'm an executive and I'm sitting in that room, I want to know action items. And that's something Aaron and I talk a lot about, both privately and now publicly for this episode, is how can we make things better? What are the actionable steps that someone can take to make the industry better for people of color and for people of other sexualities and genders? And that's something that we dive into in this conversation, and I really enjoyed it. Aaron and I have a really good rapport. We've known each other for a really long time. We spent a lot of time with one another when I was living in New York. So this conversation is really casual and really open, and I appreciate her hearing me out and me hearing her out, etc. I thought the conversation would be really valuable to all of you that are listening to this, especially on such a complex topic that I think is very black and white, no pun intended. Uh, when discussed on social media, I think we provided a forum here for Aaron to talk about it in much more delicate and sensitive and detailed perspective. And before we dive into the episode, I want to quickly give a shout out to why you might hear that my voice sounds a little bit different. I made the decision over the Christmas holiday. They didn't pay us to do this. We have a, a partnership with them. But I was totally okay with continuing to use my SM7B. I've been a sure SM7B user for a couple of years now. It's a fantastic mic. It is like the standard of the podcast industry. It's also a giant pain in the ass, if I'm perfectly honest with you. So I am now using the Beacon mic. Uh, the Beacon mic is a USB mic that has USB-C on the back. And one thing that I really like about it, and I had an audio interface, still have an audio interface that does this, but it was a little laggy and the Windows drivers weren't great is that the Beacon Mic does all of the onboard processing. So what you're listening to right now is very lightly edited in Adobe Audition. You are hearing basically what's coming out on my mic and would go into a Zoom call, into a Discord call, or anywhere, really. And I've been really impressed by this thing. Uh, When they first launched it, I think maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I was like very excited about it as a product. I was glad that we got the opportunity to work with them and that we are working with them. So if you'd like to get a Beacon mic yourself, we have a discount code. I believe it's about $30 off after it's a percentage, but I think it boils down to about $30 off with the mic. You can use that. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, it is The promo code is OVERCOME, all caps, and you can get access to the Beacon mic. So thank you to Beacon very much for providing this to me. I'm very thankful to have this new microphone. It's made my setup a lot more cleaner and a lot, you know, no, no more audio interface on my desk, no more crazy XLR cable, no more FET head uh, or cloud lifter. It's very straightforward, single mic into the arm. It's really nice. I'm very happy with this. And it's a pretty mic too. They gave me a nice little uh, red uh, pop filter that matches the Visionary's brand identity. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode with Aaron Ashley Simon. Here's our interview with Aaron. Aaron Ashley Simon, welcome to Visionaries. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation today. We have been we have been trying to get you on the show for a little bit, and you're a very busy woman, so you've been all over the place. <laughs> but I'm very glad to have you here, and I'm glad that you reached out to talk about the topic that we wanted to talk about today. You know, there was a an incident for the listener to give a little bit of of like sort of context of why we're why we're here and the bigger discussion we want to have. There was an incident earlier this week around some of the crew involved with Offline TV 
who were traveling an event together and were live streaming while they were in a car together. And one of the members, uh, Scara of Offline TV, a longtime League of Legends streamer, made a comment that was sort of backhanded at one of the another person's complexion because they were in a dark car. He was essentially, you know, making a joke about being black. And uh, that's kind of the reading between the lines. And it started a really interesting conversation. I think both you and I are really passionate about, which is racial equity in in gaming and video games and streaming and et cetera. It's something I've talked about before and I've gotten a lot of shit for. It's something you have spent a ton of time researching, speaking about, et cetera, over the course of mm-hmm. your career as as an industry leader in this in this space. I'm curious first, kind of your initial reaction to that clip when you saw the clip of the offline TV team. So my initial reaction is so it's interesting because I think over time I've had experiences, diff- you know, with with various different people, whether in the U.S. or internationally. And I think the biggest thing that I saw from that was an overall depiction and also conversation of the kind of intersectional racism and ignorance that it occur between Asian communities as well as the black communities. And those two communities have always had such a interesting and fascinating intertwined history to each other where, you know, a lot of people like on, on the positive side, Asian communities and AAPI individuals were very much supportive of the civil rights movement. And then on the latter side, there's always been a conflict between these two communities because of some of the socioeconomic and also racism that occurs within, you know, the inner cities and how white flight and a lot of POC stuck in the cities. And 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 it, it's a very, very layered thing. And that's why, like, when I put my tweet out, I was like, I have a lot of thoughts because this is a very, there's so many layers to it that we can't just outright, like, yeah, it was wrong, but like, I can't, you can't just outright be like, oh, they're racist, right? It's, there's just so much history that's contributing to kind of why that, joke and that comment was made that I'm actually looking forward to to diving more into in this episode. There's just a lot of thoughts, but you know, you, me, hugs, we're kind of having those conversations and it's just so much deeper than, than what it appears on the surface for just that tweet. I think there's a few things to digest there. I think first, you know, the gaming as a whole and it sucks that what's happened on the platform in the past 18 months, gaming as a mm-hmm. whole congregates probably the most on Twitter slash X. And yep. it is a short form content platform, tax platform, you know, 280 characters or less. And that prevents, but it is simultaneous the way you get the most reach in gaming. And so mm-hmm. like, how are you supposed to talk about something this complex with that much history that you just, you know, started to just scratch the surface of explaining how are you supposed to talk about something like that, you know, in, in a way that actually reaches everyone? Because you can link an article, but like the data shows that linking an article gets your tweet kind of like lower in the algorithm. It doesn't get as much visibility. So like you can go somewhere where you can have a bare long form discussion about this, but it doesn't seem like it's going to get the visibility needed to better educate people. And I and like it's very unfortunate to me because, yeah. you know, you can do a Twitter thread. But then you do the thread, one tweet's taken out of context, nobody actually looks at the thread, right? And it's just like, it's very hard to have a nuanced conversation about this where gamers congregate, sort of my read on things. 
Yeah. And this overall conversation about how, I mean, we're seeing it now where like even Elon Musk was like, D and I should die. Like, it's just crazy. I think that what people don't understand is like they view D and I or they view some of these conversations as, oh, giving someone something. Right. And it's not the case. It is acknowledging that there are different levels of privileges, that there are different levels of socioeconomic standings that make it challenging for people to advance in certain areas. I mean, look, here's a here's some even just data to show. There's a, a, a Pew Research put out some data showing that like roughly a quarter of adults with a household income below 30,000 a year, which is 24%, they don't even own smartphones. And it, it just shows you that we look at the socioeconomic standings, it impacts technology adoption. And that's what we're also seeing in the esports and gaming space, where it's like the less you make, the later on in life you're going to adopt the technology. And when and especially when it comes to the competitive scene in esports, a lot of these individuals were playing on PC at an early age. And what we talked about before was like the 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 industry has to understand that. Certain technologies, high span, uh, high band uh, internet, even having a, a, a ugh, shoot, a 3090, like those are luxuries. <laughs> those are not things yeah. that anyone and everyone can get. And, and that makes it a lot more challenging when it comes to seeing other individuals in the scene or seeing other individuals further their careers, whether from a streaming perspective or a competitive perspective, or even just like working in the video game industry. Yeah. Something I pointed out in the thread with hugs is that the it is not lost on me that when I go to Evo or a big fighting game event or a Super Smash Brothers event, the like what I see in front of me, right? The broader amount of diversity and how many people, particularly black people and Hispanics, tend to be there or Latinos tend to be there because I think it it's really not that difficult to think about, but I do want to explain it straight out of my mouth. Getting a Nintendo Switch or getting a PlayStation, even four or an Xbox One or a PlayStation Five or a Series X is three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars. That is something that you can envision it is much easier for a parent to buy because it's a lower cost bracket to get into. That is, and it's easier. The accessibility is easier. Also, the you know, higher likelihood your friend has one of those things. It's something you can go play at a friend's house, right? Like, it, just think about from a a dynamic of middle school, high school age students when they're being exposed to these types of things, it's easier to get access to that versus Mm -hmm. a gaming computer, which even like a decent gaming computer is like low end, $850, $900. And then you have to, you know, it goes much higher than that. And then you, like you said, you have to have a really good broadband internet connection. And I did some reporting last year about around data about this, where it's like, I don't have it directly in front of me, but it it was something Mm -hmm. like $75 is like the national average that you have to pay for 25 megabytes per second down which is like barely sufficient to play multiplayer games without a ton of lag i was writing about it in the context of cloud gaming because cloud gaming in theory should make gaming more accessible but it doesn't when you don't have good internet connections can't stream those games and upload and download data you know in real time basically and i think that's you know that is why you see that such a discrepancy it's why Streaming and people that come from PC titles like Legends, Counter Strike, etc., in the esports space in particular, tend to be white or Asian, and specifically East Asian, but Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese descent, etc. And then you look at fighting games, and it's a lot more diverse uh, because of that easier barrier to entry. Yeah, and there's also that cultural component too, right? <clears throat> Where 
you know, when we look back at the arcade era, a lot of the games that were accessible were these fighting games. And these were the community epicenters for a, a lot of Black, Latinos, Hispanics, especially within the inner city. And if you look at like New York City, right, the bodegas were the ones that had the arcade cabinets that people can come together. And all it took was a couple quarters for them to play. So like even back then, like if you didn't even have a console, you could still go to a local community epicenter to be able to play these games and have access early to these games. And then if we look even deeper, right? And this is why I was like, it's so layered, where even if you look at some of the other things that typically Black communities and Hispanic Latino communities integrate with, where it's like hip hop, right? Hip hop has always been connected and synonymous with fighting games and console gaming. Um, most of the references that you see from hip hop artists from Wale to Biggie and a few others yep. is referencing console culture, not PC gaming culture. And so that's another thing that is tied to it, too. So it's a it's the additional layer of not only socioeconomic, but also culturally as well. People are going the same way that whoever you have around you is who influences you. It's the same thing that whoever you have around, you're going to influence the games that you play and interact right. with as well. Well, and I think the other thing that I thought about when I was tweeting about this to Hugs is the how people tend to be congregated and what like mm. demographic population tends to be in some of these areas, particularly when I think about the coast, West and East Coast, right? Like the a lot of streamers, a lot of pro gamers are from California, specifically Southern California, particularly the people that work in the industry are Southern California. And what two devs are there, right? Games of Blizzard, right? Like it and you know. I didn't grow up in Southern California. I know many children who did, who are now adults, <laughs> um, et cetera. But like culturally, it is a part of, if you're a gamer in Southern California, Riot and Blizzard are something you're exposed to, even if not directly. And to your point about sort of cultural influence of what you play, like that makes sense. And, you know, I'm not saying there aren't, there are plenty of black people and Latinos that live in Southern California, but, but, you know, in the college culture and other things, like when you're exposed to those types of companies, a lot of those colleges do have to have a pretty big white and, and Asian demographic in those universities, et cetera, around that area. And it's something, you know, I I'm super interested in is why, you know, why is why are they getting more exposure to things like League of Legends and and World of Warcraft and Overwatch and these other titles in a way that, you know, other people from other ethnic backgrounds are not. I also think it's like an interesting thing, too, where. There is. And, 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 you know, for those who are listening, hear me out. There is a level of ignorance that is going to be expected from certain individuals, considering like when you're a streamer, you're spending most of your time at a computer. You're not really put in certain positions where you're out and about and having to interact with different demographics of individuals, especially now. I think that like, I mean, I always say I'm very, very grateful to be a millennial because we remember the times before, you know, discord and having to play solely online. Like we, you had to actually go to someone's house to play and, and really be able to build these relationships and interactions with people. I think that, you know, especially in the streamer culture, you don't really have to go outside. And I think that it definitely limits people's perspectives and it definitely limits people's awareness of things. And especially as me being Afro-Latina, I've realized over time that there is there is a unique difference and there is 
some also a commonality between like you know racism and ignorance and sometimes yeah. ignorance is not necessarily them being racist is that they're just not exposed to different demographics and unfortunately you know some of the people media is 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 only thing that really is what they can draw off of like i remember i went to school in kentucky i literally went to school with kids who'd never seen a black person until they went to college and so mm-hmm. and not to say that the streamers don't but you know their profession limits them from having to be exposed to certain different demographics. I mean, they can make an effort, but I also understand why when you have to stream so many hours and you're, that's your main income and you have to stay inside and it limits your friend group. And then when you get to a certain level, you only hang out with certain groups of individuals. And then it really just narrows your perspective of life and what is really going on. For as much as the technology connects us, it also really, really dampens and prevents that inner connectivity amongst different communities sometimes. Yeah, and I think going back to the the video of Scar and the OTV crew, we saw the statements that Scara said, apologizing for what he said, and then also what Quarter Jade said, who was streaming when when it happened. And to your point about the difference between ignorance and racism, at least in my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. I've always viewed the difference of in, as a difference of intent. Racism mm-hmm. is like hatred that is purposely intended, thought out, you know, and and like just a part of that being you act on it, you do something, you say something to someone with the intent to insult, etc. Ignorance is you're just not educated about like what you're saying. And you can evolve from that. Like you can mm-hmm. evolve from a place of ignorance. It, and it's not necessarily it's not necessarily intended to be hatred from, from the very beginning. It, is that like a fair sort of check? Yeah. How would you explain yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's education and, and the lack of exposure, I would yeah. say. And I think you read their statements and it's very clear that both were both are were ignorant about like what what was said there. And I think the other part on the on quarter jade side and the other people in the, that car is they didn't speak up in the moment. And I don't know about you, but I not on not on an ethnic and racial level, but I'm in a couple of discords where, you know, half the people are my age and a little bit older. So call it, you know, 25, 26, 27, up to probably <laughs> 35 that play games in there. And the other half are like. 18 to you know 18 to 24 and someone will drop the r word or something and i am one of the first people to say like cut that shit out like that you know yeah like and just say it i think that's really important to say it in the moment and i've noticed even some of those people have come a very long way in not saying that and they've gotten better and have started to behave better because me and some others do that when when they say something and I think that was the other part of this conversation around that video specifically was nobody said anything. They just let it slide, laughed and let it slide. And I think that's what Quarter Jade was saying too, is that, you know, she was disappointed in herself for not saying something in the moment. How how important do you think that is to like speak up in, in moments like that? It's super important. You know, I think that when you speak up, right, it doesn't necessarily have to be some super 
you know, because not everyone can can be very direct. Right. And that's something I've realized, and especially like I realize how non-direct people can be on the West Coast. I realize that. But there are ways that you can go about it where it doesn't have to be like an attack on the person. Right. And just be like, hey, I don't think you should say that. Or, you know, I think that what we have to really recognize is that when we are addressing this ignorance or when we addressing these comments, you know, if it's not outwardly racism, no one's saying that that person is bad. They just had a lack in judgment of that moment of what they did. And it could be a learning point, right? It could have been a very good learning moment. And it is important to speak up. I also think that it's important to acknowledge, right? Like I was talking to my friend about how like the first step that we need to take in the gaming esports scene is that we need to acknowledge that colorism is an issue. It's always been an issue. It's been an issue in gaming. It's been an issue in the black community. And it's been an issue even in the Asian communities, right? Like there's even yeah. this intersectional conflict between colorism with, you know, East Asia and Southeastern Asia. So we have to acknowledge. I think the first step is to acknowledge and there's nothing wrong with calling out. I think like the problem with social media is that social media has created this entire environment where like you have to like be blunt and call someone out and like do it in a mm -hmm. way that's like, you know, almost like too straightforward all the time. And I don't think that you have to necessarily do that because I do understand like sometimes when things happen and you're so shocked and you may not respond right away. And maybe like they should have said something later or maybe there's a conversation offline that they probably they should have had. I just don't think that everything has to be so blunt all the time when you're calling someone out or anything like that. I think sometimes even having that offline conversation so that you're not pulling in so many people from online who have so many opinions that quite frankly, yep. those all those opinions don't matter, <laughs> you know, whichever way they want to handle, it, I think it's the most important thing but you should always call out or speak to your friends whenever this, these kind of moments transpire. If I've not shown my hand in this conversation to listeners up to this point in the past 15 minutes, clearly I am very pro diversity and inclusion in the space. I think we should be doing a lot of different things, which I want to dive into a little bit, but we should be mm -hmm. doing a lot of better things to better accessibility for people of all racial and gender and sexuality backgrounds to get into the space and have pathways of working in the space and being active consumers and being recognized. I think one of the things, though, that is can be really frustrating to me, and I actually had this conversation with someone who works in the conference space a couple of days ago, is that, you know, a lot of conferences in gaming or that include gaming tracks as a part of them, there is always a DNI panel or DEI panel. And personally, I found so many of them to be extremely ineffective because it starts from a question of like, what is it like to be black in gaming? What is it like to be gay in gaming? What is it like to be trans in gaming? And certainly laying that as a ground rule is really important. But the discussions, like these things are 30 minutes to an hour long. The discussion never evolves to like, okay, so how do we make it better for other people? That's the like missing part in so many of that discussions. It's like, all right, experience is really important. And I want people to be able to hear them. But I also want like the people that are sitting in those types of rooms to go, okay, how can I, individual person, make an action, take an action to make things more, more inclusive? And I'm curious, from that perspective, your perspective on that, how do we better educate people in the space with 
real actionable items of things that anyone can do to make this space better for people of various, again, ethnic backgrounds, gender backgrounds, sexuality mm-hmm. backgrounds, et cetera. How do we do that? Yeah. So it's interesting you bring this up because like, trust me, I'm part of those panels and it's a little frustrating how people don't see the value in those panels. They always kind of like put those panels off to the side when they need to actually put those panels in the forefront because, okay, even if I'm talking well, and I to think, someone- Sorry, I just want to say like, I think they, I agree, but I also think that like the conferences themselves need yeah. to do a better job at directing those panels because oh, again, yes. like rather yes. than it just be like an hour of like personal sharing, which is important, again, important, yes. Yes. but rather making it an action, like coming out with like actionable things for people to do. Yeah. Basically. Oh yeah. hundred yeah. percent. I think so interesting enough, the first thing that I always start off with, because not everyone has similar moral compasses as I do. And I, so I start off by saying, Hey, even from a moral and value perspective, you don't believe in DEI. It has been proven through studies that DEI can improve the profits of a business by at least 25% just off of DEI initiatives alone, right? And I think that a lot of times when we look at uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, everyone focuses in on the diversity side, right? Oh, we need all these kinds of people. We need, you know, this isn't that. Mm-hmm. But what they don't realize, actually, is the most important element is the inclusionary aspect of it. And the simplest actions and things that they can do is by creating more of a psychological safety in their companies. Now, what do I mean by that? Right. So when I'm saying psychological safety, right, it can be the simplest things as creating, maybe creating a system, a communication system or a town hall where anyone can offer input on specific projects, right? Even the junior staff can offer input, right? You want to create an environment where people can feel heard and listened to. And even just creating some sort of system or some feedback process that people can give feedback or people can give advice and not feel like they're going to be shamed or called stupid or anything like that. When you create an environment where people can feel listened to and heard, that's actually when you can develop the best solutions and the best products. So you can even just create just a specific system to get feedback without any repercussions, without any issues, and actually listen. Another step too is, and this is probably going to be the one of the hardest one, is like physical safety, right? Like, yes, it's a very young industry, a lot of young staff, but like you can't create an environment where you have such a high burnout rate. And that is not only going to discourage people, but it's also going to make it very, very challenging for you to get the best product. I think if anything, the biggest things that companies can do and the individuals can do is create process, better processes and systems to handle more operation systems, to handle more feedback systems internally in your companies. You don't have to like create, you know, always think that, oh, I got to create something externally to help people outside. No, it starts with creating these foundations inside. The more that you're able to create psychological safety, the more you're able to create physical safety, and the more that you create an environment where people can be themselves and also understand the privileges that they have or don't have, you'll be able to be more effective 
in your business, right? Like, I'll be honest, when I work with some of, you know, when we work with some of my colleagues, we also understand, hey, there's certain meetings that are going to need a white man for. There's certain conversations that us black staff can help lead more and we're going to own it. There's nothing wrong with admitting that because this is society. They're the same societal issues that we encounter in real life are the same thing in businesses. But when you're able to create an environment when you're having those kind of conversations and having people understand certain optics, certain privileges, be able to speak up on certain things, you're able to be more effective in the operation systems that you're doing in your business. So if anything, you can start implementing some of these elements to improve your operations, improve your communications. And those steps alone are going to help you in your inclusionary efforts. I think too, to that point, and I don't want to be like, Aaron, how do you make white people feel better about this? That's not, that's not <laughs> what I'm asking. But when you start talking about privileges yeah, um, in a open environment, I think a lot of people feel like you are discount- discounting a lot of white people in particular feel like you are discounting their journey and saying that they had some sort of leg up and it becomes really emotionally charged really quickly. I'll talk very briefly about my experience. I, for the first half of my childhood from birth to nine years old, I was extremely privileged. I'm a white man. I grew up in the South, a very racially unstable, uh, you know, smaller town outside of Atlanta. And, you know, people I went to high school had Confederate flags on the back of their windows at, at their trucks that were at the school. And so the first half of my childhood, extremely privileged. Cruises every year, sometimes multiple times a year, lots of money. My parents had a nasty divorce in 2006. My mom traded custody rights for the money. My dad blew through all the money, didn't have contact with my dad. Uh, and then 2008 hit. And we went from very, very well off to very poor, very quickly for my mom and a family of three, me and my two brothers. And so I, it was very hard. We didn't have money for, I had scholarships, but we didn't have money for me to go to the college I wanted to, to pursue the career I wanted to. And I like worked my ass off to find ways to get to where I am now. But I do admit, and I will always admit, there were certainly privileges in in that, you know, whether sort of intentional or not, privileges in that experience, be it, you know, I... I'm the youngest town hire ever at ESPN. I started at 19. Do I think I could have probably done that if I was a Mexican man or a black man? Probably not. I like it definitely was helpful that I was a white dude. And there are other just, again, really like micro moments in my my personal life and career that I realized like me being a white dude here to your point earlier, like being a white dude here. And I personally am kind of good at looking at the whole grand scheme of pictures, you know, like I may not have had privileges financially in certain areas, like in my childhood, et cetera, even now today, but I certainly had sort of other privileges and others that affected me. And I, unfortunately, I think, and I know the words that are about to come out of my mouth, but I think when we talk about privilege, we think about it as such a black and white thing when the answer is truly somewhere in the middle for most people, right? It, it's not like, you know, it's not so cut and dry one way or the other. And, I, and I'm curious how you think we can better talk about those things in a way that is not going to make everyone immediately fucking angry and can like actually get people to be retro like reflective and and introspective about their journeys to talk about those things more openly 
Yeah, I think that it starts with like, first off, you know, when we talk about privilege, like privilege goes beyond just racial privilege, right? There's socioeconomic sure. privilege. There's sexual orientation privilege. There's even things like regional privilege. There's privileges even for like the fact that we can speak English, right? So yeah, exactly. I think that the problem that we see, right, is when we have a conversation about privileges, we only focus on racial privilege and then we only focus on, oh, the advantages you have. When what we need to do is break it down even more, right? Because yes, there are individuals that are always going to have a little more advantage, right? But it's very much more complex than that. So for example, myself, right? I'm black so and, and Hispanic. And so, yes, I do have a disadvantage for being a black woman. And there is a level of privilege that I have because I'm a lighter skin black woman. So individuals can actually have certain advantages and also certain disadvantages. And the way that we need to go about it is we got to break it down into these layer points. There's actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned this because this is actually an exercise I did when I um, did a program with Cornell about DE&I. And, you know, one of the things they said was break it down into religion privilege, gender privilege, sexu sexual orientation privilege, right? Break it down into these things because, you know, someone can be black and have the disadvantage from a racial perspective, but also can have an advantage from a gender perspective or have an advantage from a religion perspective. So instead of saying, hey, you have all this privilege, blah, 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 blah. It's like, talk about these sectional moments where people felt like they didn't have an advantage or talk about the lack of life experience that prevented them from having an advantage, right? Because sometimes it could be like, they don't have experience, let's just say, I don't know, I'm just gonna throw out something random. Like they didn't have the full experience in their city in marketing, and that gave them a disadvantage for, from furthering their careers, right? When we talk about these individual sectional points that of, of, of disadvantage, it, it makes people more willing to to acknowledge the privileges that they have and the even racial privileges that they have because it doesn't form into like hey you have all these privileges so you're it, it makes them feel like oh i'm a bad person no it's like hey mm -hmm. you do have certain categories in certain areas where you have more privilege but maybe like if it's a white man maybe he's gay and can't speak english like that is a disadvantage Yep. So the more that we shape it into a more nuanced and layer conversation, instead of just saying all of it is racial privilege, the more that people actually would be willing to acknowledge that racial privilege, because we are also acknowledging some of the life struggles that they may be going through as well. Um, like you said, it's not always black and white. So if we if we take that approach of identifying these kind of more fine-tuned and specific privileges and disadvantages that people have, it creates a more open conversation for people to admit the privileges that they have. I think the other thing I want to ask you about, because it's something that you have personally spent a lot of work on, you have a scholarship with your alma mater, University of Kentucky, 
Sorry, I don't like their football team, but it's fine. I respect <laughs> I respect the work. I, I did why. I did actually the last last football game I went to during my bachelor party, I went and saw them get the brakes beat off of them by Missouri, which was great because I, <laughs> I did a Louisville bachelor party. The enemy of the, my enemy is my friend, and in that case is a bulldog. But yeah, so nonetheless, you you do have a scholarship fund with UK and you have done a lot of work in the education space to provide more opportunity to other people from different backgrounds. You know, I, you and I lived in New York City and were IRL friends for a period of time before we moved away. But I, you know, it's something that I had two experiences when I was in New York that were really, really cool for me. And I want to share them here because I think, and then I'll get to the point about education and educational opportunity. So one, I taught for the school, the New York Times, which was like a summer program that wealthy children go to for the most part. and. I taught for them for a summer. I taught their first games and esports program, multi-week program, and every one of my students was white or Asian. Every single one of them. Didn't have a single black student. I didn't have a single Latino student. And compared to the other experience I had was, and, and to be fair, the School of the New York Times, like admission was really expensive. And I think that probably contributed to that as well. But I had another experience where an educator that I think you and I know was working with, I can't remember if it was technically elementary or middle. It's in that like sort of fourth, fifth, sixth grade, like that sort of age group and invited me to come to Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn, but go further into Brooklyn than where I lived in downtown to come to the school and to meet his students and to speak to them. Almost the entire classroom is black and the school had funded for them to have a PlayStation, some switches, et cetera. And there was like this room, kind of small but cool, where they were playing Rocket League and Smash and all these other titles, giving them this opportunity as a part of their education to get into a part of video games. And I am constantly hearing from educators online. Anytime I like make it a comment about how esports is dying, like the current esports audience and like decline around sort of the highest professional level of things. I'll always get an email, a text, a DM or whatever from an educator who is like, but my high school esports program or my college esports program, we have a computer lab that has, you know, 10 computers that now can run basically any title in our game. And like we're giving exposure to a bunch of these kids that never, you know, otherwise wouldn't have it. That's wonderful. And I'm very excited about that. I'm curious, one where you think we are in the step of doing that and making games more accessible at, in education, in America in particular, and two, how you think that will impact sort of the professional layer of this industry from you know, those kids being exposed to those types of things to getting the opportunity to go educate themselves and then become a part of the industry in a professional manner. Yeah, I think that ultimately, <clears throat> I think that the focus for esports and gaming programs on the middle school and high school front, even the collegiate front, what well, we have to view it is like, one, it's 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 not going to be a pipeline for the professional standpoint in terms of like pro players. I think, yeah, in some in some ways, maybe, but like for some of them, it's like the 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 age for professional players in the esports scene for certain esports, not all, but for certain ones, it's really young, right? So. I don't think that we should view it as, okay, this is the pipeline for us to get more pro players into the pro player scene. I think that how we have to view it as giving access to the youth for technology and STEM initiatives and projects to further their education. Because, you know, one of the things that I did for my scholarship was like, hey, I said, hey, 
for this scholarship, I'm not trying to create, you know, have a scholarship where like this person needs to work in esports. If anything, I always tell everyone, don't work in esports first, go somewhere <laughs> else and then come into esports. But I use it as a way to increase that exposure, increase opportunities, and give them necessary skill sets. Like one of the biggest problems that I see in the esports scene is there's a lot of individuals that do not know how to project manage. And that's one of the mm. most important skill sets. But like if you implement these programs into the collegiate scene, like look, you get you get a kid and like, hey, we're doing a tournament and you have that kid help to project manage that tournament. They're building an important life skill that they can take anywhere. And what we have to view esports and how we have to view gaming, especially these programs, is that we're not creating these programs for kids to get into esports. We should be creating these programs for them to be successful in life, period. If they want to get into esports, that's great but they don't necessarily have to. And I think that like, for example, right, when you were mentioning Brooklyn, right? Like what we're seeing with the nonprofit community and how they're working with HBCUs, they are utilizing esports as a way to not only give exposure and opportunity, but also they're developing programs where kids can actually meet individuals from the gaming space if there's interest. They're putting money into the pockets of these kids. like. A lot of them don't have a lot of money. I remember when I was a college kid, I had a I had a resort to my scholarships to to even get food. It was like, you know, it was hard times. And so these programs should be use of 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 supporting the youth during their educational journey and to prepare them for life. I you know, I don't right now <laughs> we have so much we have to fix in esports before we can even consider developing programs to bring people into esports. And also Esports is so niche and I don't see it being mainstream anytime soon. So if anything, we need to create these programs to be more effective on giving these kids these effective skill sets and tools so they could be successful in their careers. Because right now we're not doing that in esports. And that's why part of the problem is, you know, I just want to say, you know, I'm sorry that there's been a lot of layoffs in gaming. There's a lot of layoffs in esports. And, and part of the issue is some of these skills are so, or these job roles are so specific that like you, they're not transferable skills. And I think that we need to focus on utilizing esports and utilizing these programs to develop transferable skills so that if we do have another winter, you know, there's not going to be all these kids that are like, what do I do next? Where do I go? Can I get another job? Right. And I think that's what we need to focus on and not focus on trying to get the next faker or trying to get, you know, these pro yeah. players into the scene. Well, I think sometimes the people <laughs> that are pitching educational institutions on these programs do it in the incorrect manner. They try to make the one-to-one -one comparison with pro sports and amateur sports and like the pipeline of going from an amateur sport to a pro sport that doesn't exist in esports. That is like categorically the wrong way to view it. You know, you were alluding to this earlier, but like it's not going to be the star high school esports athlete most likely that becomes the next faker or becomes the next best player, you know, at a professional level of a League of Legends or a Counter-Strike. It's going to be the dude that sits at home and ruthlessly grinds his ass off all the time. And that's the person that's going to be that, not the person who's hanging out at the after school program. And I think a lot of the way, I mean, my, my high school I went to has an esports program now. And I've like talked to the guy that, that runs it that was a teacher there when I went to high school a decade ago or more than a decade ago now at this point. And he 
Yeah, I think that a lot of them use the, it's easy for administrators, you know, county administrators or school administrators to make the one-to-one, but, but I don't think it's apt. I think it should be more focused on education. Like, you know, one of the programs that I actually really enjoyed getting the opportunity to speak to before was at Quinnipiac, the University of Connecticut. They had me to come speak a couple times and one of the, and I still keep in touch with some of those students. Uh, one of them actually has moved to Austin and works for Blizzard now and like occasionally he's been like paying me to hang out and I want to be able to, it's so fucking busy. Uh, but I met him when I was speaking there when I lived in, in New York and drove up to their school to chat with them. But yeah, like their program was because they're, you know, they have sort of computer sciences as a track was like you need to create a bunch of different things related to gaming whether it be like basic games yourself or like you know and then you need to put together a portfolio of these those things you did so it was like a full semester basically that kind of touched a little bit on everything related to cs and business admin etc for the gaming space and i was like that's a smart program because like that kind of makes you like gives you just enough taste to like see if something interests you and then if it does then you can explore the educational path specific to that one thing that's effective in my opinion of like the way to expose people to games not Mm -hmm. just the you know come train at the middle school and the high school to be the next you know the top earning player in in an esports title yeah i and i hope that some of the educators understand you know where i'm coming from with this i don't I don't fully agree and believe on having like esports degrees or, you know, I, I feel like they shouldn't be standalones. I think that they should be incorporated into like marketing, right? You can have, you take the full marketing course, but then you can have a class that's specifically esports focused because currently, right? Like even now, like the esports market is, is changing. Like it went towards being heavily focused on the competitive front. Now, so many different companies and so many different teams are now trying to incorporate other elements so that they can pay for the esports side of things, right? Like they're more so content focused or they're, you know, mm-hmm. more entertainment focused. So I, I I think that the way we have to think about it is not necessarily thinking of like, oh, an esports degree, but like utilizing, like you're saying, utilizing esports or utilizing gaming to help them develop their portfolios, help them to develop transferable skills that can make them successful, whether they're in esports or not. And I want us to lean away from just esports degrees focus and and more so, hey, here are, and and kind of like what you were saying, right? Like you can't do one-to-one when it comes to esports and and sports overall. There are certain elements, right? Like there's marketing elements that you can take from sports that you can implement into esports. I mean, shoot, even if you look at the broadcast, right? Like the fact that you have a production team, you have a run of show, like these all come from traditional media. So there's elements that the skills that can be learned that can be transferable. But like you're saying, you can't teach it the same. So I, I just hope that the programs will adjust to more of a focus on these transferable skills that can be used in other industries if they want to go to those industries versus just having these specific degrees that are just focusing on esports because we don't know what esports is going to look like in five to ten years from now we don't yeah for sure and i i have a lot of thoughts we could spend hours (laughs) as we have before in person hours talking about why i think there's some sort of barrier to entry to esports as a fan Mm -hmm. 
chief among them, I think a lot of the content created around esports athletes is super uninteresting. There's nothing human about them. Like, and I'm sorry, playing a video game for copious amounts of hours is uninteresting. Like it just is like, I, you know, what's awesome about sports is when you hear about people's life story and you go like, I, I've had an experience just like that. And you feel like personally connected to them, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I always use the DeMar Hamlin example as the best of that. They're like a second string player, had a you know freak accident on the field, heart stopped, and then it like nobody knew who he was outside of like one beat reporter for the team, and then someone who covered him in college because he was a second stringer. He didn't get a whole lot of visibility before that incident, and you know that it comes out that he like you know went to University of Pittsburgh to stay close to home to make sure his brother didn't get into trouble. He then like started a charity that he'd raise money every for or for every year and do a kids drive for kids in Pittsburgh who are underprivileged and like mm-hmm. uh, you know. That to me, like that, you know, random second string player on the Buffalo Bills has this really deep life story that no one was talking about. And it's just like you could pick like any athlete out of the NFL or the NBA or the MLS and like or the MLB. And a lot of them have that. Like You could just kind of put your finger on the dot. Not as yeah. much of that in the esports community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I hate to say this, and but this is the truth. And, you know, and I say this because, like, I talk to, you know, for those who don't know, I also work behind the scenes. So I talk to brands all the time. Esports pro players aren't as marketable as they think. And it goes back to what you said, Jacob, right? Like, at the end of the day, these brands don't give a crap about the games. <laughs> they They don't. They care about the demographic and communities that they have, but they also care about the stories of the players, the stories of people. And that's what they can market on a grander scale than like, hey, you're great at this game. And you don't even necessarily have to have such a a massive following or be the best player on the team. Like you were saying, like you can be this, you can be the practice player. You could be second string. It doesn't matter. Like, I mean, the perfect example is like for myself, like I was one of the first individuals signed to the Puma gaming side and it had nothing to do with like my broadcast. It had it 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 dealt with the messaging and what I stood for and it resonated with Matt. You know, rest in peace to Matt. But it it resonated with Matt. And Matt's like, that's a message that we can convey in through what we're trying to sell. Because at the end of the day, the best companies are trying to sell a lifestyle and a message, not necessarily a product. And they need individuals to help sell that message. And so that's why I always tell like pro players and even streamers, I tell them, show other aspects of your life. Don't just do games. Like talk about other things. Are you a WWE fan? Are you, do you love cooking? You know, talk about your, your life story. Did you come from, you know, a low income life to where you are right now? Like you got to tell more and that's going to open up more opportunities. That's why we're seeing, dude, that's why we're seeing like Pokemon and others, why they're moving away from streaming and trying to do other things because it's increasing their marketability by doing that because brands just don't want to just sell to uh, people who just live stream. And quite frankly, a lot of brands are actually moving more away from live streaming because it's such a high brand risk and liability that can come with it. Yeah, I mean, we had a charity. Hopefully we get the opportunity to work with them next year. Had a charity focused on mental health that like approached me at an event and they were like, really want to work together with you. And I was just like, Okay, like, what are your thoughts? And they're like, we just like love that you talk about mental health online, and they're very open about your own mental health and like trying to promote and provide resources to other people to get help with mental health. You're level headed about it. We want to work together for that. And it's just like, cool, man. Like, I, I'm I'm game, right? Like, it really nothing to do with my journalism and my like work on that end. It's just like I tweet about mental health, and I've been really open about mine and my journey. And and I think like 
I'm low, way low on the totem pole compared to like an esports player or someone who has a ton of influence. And I really do hope, genuinely hope, that we get away from narratives that focus on in-game performance all the time. We start talking about human beings. Start talking about human beings in the content because that's what matters. That's what makes people feel personally connected to humans. So that's important. Absolutely. Humanizing stories are always going to be the best form of connecting and the best connecting stories, no matter what. doesn't matter how good you are at, at, you know, a game, right? Like people are going to be interested in you as a person. I mean, look, even with Faker, right? People are dying to learn more about him as a person. So that's always going to be the, the, the most crucial element when it comes to branding and marketing. I want to end on this. We talked mm-hmm. about, we've covered a lot of ground in this, in this pod. I want to ask you about what you think about the outlook. You know, you have all that exposure to young people in the space Mm -hmm. that could be not just the future professional players, but like future professionals working in the industry, in roles in the industry, et cetera. If you take a thousand foot view and you look down and you look at what's happening in education systems around, you know, gaming related education, business admin, Mm -hmm. comp sci, everything else, and you look at what's happening broadly, are you positive, negative, neutral about like how the industry is going to change moving forward? What is your mm-hmm. kind of thought? Um, I think I'm 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 pretty neutral, right? Because I think that we, I think what we're seeing is not only like a winter, but we're seeing like, hey, you know, we <laughs> overinflated a lot of things in this industry due to the attention that we got during 2020 and 2021, and I think we got a little too ahead of ourselves, especially when it came to the VCs that we brought into the scene. And I think now is like, okay, this is a perfect time to course correct. And I am a little bit hopeful, but, and this is a big but, it's going to require us to really take a look, a hard look at ourselves and really fix the problems. Because like, I have to say, you know, some of the conversations that came from like the news with EG, right? It was like, everyone's like, oh, this is why we shouldn't allow people into the scene. And what I have to say is there are some people in the scene who are endemic that are contributing to the problem as well. It's not just non-endemic people. Like we really got to take a hard look at ourselves and understand that like those who are endemic are just as much as a part of the problem as the non-endemics that came to the scene. I think what we need to do is really understand like, hey, we overinflated, we overinflated players' salaries. We overinflated when it came to VCs. We really need to course correct this and be honest with it. I think another thing we need to be honest with is esports is not this mainstream thing and it's not going to be for a while. And we have to be okay with that. It's going to be niche, right? It's not going to be beating out traditional sports anytime. It's not. (laughs) You know, I know they always say the numbers, but it's not going to beat out traditional sports because we do not have a solid grounding of of revenue generating sources that sports has and has for for a very long time. This is a young industry. So we need to be understanding of that and and start building the necessary pieces. I also think that we we also need to understand that esports is also part of entertainment. For as even though it's niche, esports is not like the problems that happen in esports don't just happen in esports. It happens in overall entertainment. I actually had a conversation with someone where they were like, oh, you know, people are getting underpaid and people are, you know, being mistreated and work and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, listen, that's just entertainment. 
And I'm not saying it's right, but like the amount of times I worked in the music industry and got paid nothing to do shit. I was like, you and me both. I wore like seven hats, had to do seven jobs and only getting paid $50,000. Like it's not just an esports problem, it's entertainment. And when we understand that esports is part of the general entertainment industry and how entertainment's not just a siloed thing anymore, it's just one great area. This is why we need to develop more skills than just focusing on esports because there's going to be music. You're seeing Riot already doing it with Arcane and their music department. Esports is not just esports and gaming is not just gaming. So we also need to start telling people, hey, you need to start building these necessary skills beyond just, oh, you're passionate about esports. And quite frankly, I'm going to be very honest. When we when I when I look at people that I'm interested in, in like hiring for stuff, I actually want to avoid people who are super fans like. Yes, we want some people who are fans, but we need to have people who are objective as well. Yes. and can be honest with us. Yes teams and honest with people so i would say like if you are someone who's listening who is a fan you got to develop more objective analytical views like you can't just be a fan because like sometimes you're going to have to make hard decisions on the business front to make things better for your org or for your team and you can't just be a fan of it all and do everything like yeah we're so great that sometimes you got to admit hey we're doing something shitty and we're not doing it right so I'm hoping that we, I am positive that there are people who are starting to do that and there are people who are valuable in the industry who are having these conversations. So that's why I'm kind of like neutral. I'm just curious to see where we go from there. Well, thank you very much for coming on the pod. I think that was a lot of insight that we could get dense down into less than an hour. Aaron, where can other <laughs> people find you? Social media, et cetera. Where, where should people go look for things related to what you're doing? Yeah, you can find me at Aaron A. Simon on pretty much on all social media platforms. That's the best way to stay up to date with everything that I'm doing. I'm always putting my hands into something. I'm like you, Jacob. I'm always doing multiple things. <laughs> yeah, that, for me, it's the ADHD, but you know, it's it's fine. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on the pod. It was a pleasure to finally have you here. Thank you as well. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're there, consider giving us a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you want to support us directly at Overcome and you appreciate the work that we do, you can now join our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. We have a range of benefits for our patrons, including special episodes of Visionaries and access to the video version of Visionaries. We'll see you here next week on Visionaries. Visionaries.